Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Gordon S., Jared W., Jack T., and Andy J. A new guest on the program today, we have Mr. Scott Evans on the show. Scott is the Chief Executive Officer of Reconnaissance Energy Africa. The company is establishing a potential new onshore oil exploration district in northeastern Namibia through their exploration grounds in the Kavango Basin. Recon Africa is an elite portfolio holding at Smith Weekly Research. The company is listed on the Toronto Venture Exchange under the symbol RECO and also on the US OTC markets under the symbol RECAF. Mr. Evans, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. Well, Scott, just for the audience, um, you know, we had, you know, stated to our audience on Twitter that, of course, Craig would also be on the show, but uh, Craig had some other pressing appointments and he couldn't join. But Scott is the more interesting guy here, and I'm sure <laughs> Craig would agree. So <laughs> thank you. Let's start out here. How about your view, Scott, because you're a veteran of this industry globally, overall oil market view at this point, And where do you see the price of oil going, say, over the next one to two years? Yeah, it's this is I mean in all the years I've been in the markets and you know I joined uh, Exxon back in the in the 80s just in time for the first, you know <laughs> one of the big crashes this to me has been the most difficult one because there's just so many you know overprinting trends but overall and this is going to be my opinion just based on what I see here in the US because I still have lots of friends working in the Permian such I think it's going to be constructive for a while um I think you're seeing, especially in the U.S. and in particular in Texas, people are out. There's traffic jams. Uh, people are, the airports are getting full. Um, and so these airlines are using jet fuel. I just think it's going to be constructive for a while. Uh, you know, you see price numbers all over the place. But, you know, to me, if, if uh, and I'll just put my Permian Basin hat on, if we have a, uh, numbers in this in the $70 barrel range, that's, that's good for good projects, and and I think what we've learned over the last couple of years is you need good projects. You know, as a geologist, I know the rocks are not all good. You have to really work it and just not assume everything you you touch in a shale play, for example, is is going to be good. We're involved in conventional oil uh, in in uh, Namibia and Botswana. Our costs are going to be lower, and so this kind of a pricing for us is you know if we're in the 70s, we're in, in lovely shape. Scott, what do you think? Let's look out a year or two in advance. And as the oil price probably stays the same or goes higher, what's your thoughts on, you know, people getting incentivized and motivated to go out and do exploration work when the price is, you know, let's call it $9,800 a barrel? Do you see that ultimately that once again, we get into the cyclical nature of this business and price goes up, everybody starts an oil company and eventually supply becomes a problem again? I think there's a really strong possibility that supply will become a problem. I think that's inevitable. I mean, we all look at ourselves in a, in a transition, you know, from 100% fossil fuels to what the future may have. Um, and it's 
you know, not going to be even in terms of demand. I, I, I think, you know, there, there's going to be more demand before the new things are ready is what I mean there. Now, does everybody go up and start an old company? Um, you know, I think there was a lot of froth you know, before the pandemic. And so certainly that's moved out. But I think you'll see serious people with experience uh, coming back in. Definitely. Yeah, agreed. Environmental pressures and climate change pressures continue to reduce the potential for future supply and, and of course, permitting of projects and so forth. And so that's also a, a new component that comes in. And with this ESG push, which we'll talk about in a moment, that a lot of these companies uh, don't meet that criteria for ESG. Some do, some good ones, but that's also another pressure that's at least, that's going to persist for a while. I'm not sure if it's something that will be here forever, but uh, it's certainly going to be here for the foreseeable future. Uh, I mean, um, we're we're counting on it, and it's part of our corporate strategy. You know, it, we're kind of unique in the sense that um, we're, as a new exploration company, without production assets right now, we're net zero, right? And our goal is to stay net zero even as we begin to produce. Um, and we'll talk about that a little more in some more detail. But um, I think we're unique with that position, but we're committed to doing everything we can, you know, both in terms of offsets and new technologies to stay net zero. Well, let's chat a little bit more about that in a moment, but let's come back here for a moment. You've got some good background and experience. Uh, why don't you take off from Exxon and give us your resume? Sure. Yeah, I have a master's degree in geology. I got recruited out of school to work for Exxon out in uh, sunny California. So not too many <laughs> oil and gas folks can say their first job was in uh, was in Ventura. But uh, I had overall a dozen years with Exxon, both in production and, and exploration, uh, dominantly in the US. I had an opportunity to leave Exxon after 12 years to join a, a startup company called Landmark Graphics, which for those who are in the business will realize or remember, uh, Landmark started the 3D seismic visualization and, and interpretation boom. <laughs> right after that, you know, we were bought by by Halliburton back when Dick Cheney was running things. And so uh, I stayed with Halliburton for 25 years after that. I um, ran, after doing some work on the products, you know, to, for interpretation, I ran the subservice consulting group, which was mainly an international group. That's where I started working in the Eastern Hemisphere quite a bit. And then I also uh, expanded my role ultimately to be a, uh, a vice president and, a, and an officer of Halliburton and managed our uh, oil and gas um, asset group. So we had properties that we you know, invested with and brought other investors into that we thought were really strong um, and actually had used Halliburton technologies to, to make them stronger. Uh, took early retirement from that in 2019. Was looking around that I'd known Craig Stanky, the founder of of, uh, of Reconnaissance Africa, for a number of years. We we helped him out in Europe, and we were uh, offsetting operators in Mexico. And the more I started to look at the acreage they had, and did my own research, uh, talked to some of the uh, PhD guys that are done some of the work in the area, uh, Ansgar Wanky and Jim Granath, who I felt that this was a really unique play um, for a number of reasons and decided to join first, you know, as uh, essentially advising geologists and a chief operating officer that I became CEO uh, just under a year ago. So that's me. Yeah, Scott, I have just an extensive background. And before we get into Recon Africa here, a real mm -hmm. quick summary before we get into the details, but I want to come back to energy for a moment. 
because you're involved with the oil business, you've seen this transition that's occurred over the years and various attempts at trying to create energy from other sources. How do you look at the world of energy today and what's your preference on what energy should be? Uh, I think the, the word I used earlier is probably the right one in, in transition. Oil and gas is ultimately a finite resource. You know, ultimately, as a geologist, I can look in the rock record and see climate change. Now, <laughs> in my case, I view it over millions of years, but nonetheless, uh, I think that we have to be mindful of worldview. Um, but I, I, I really do see oil and gas having an important role for, for a long time. And I'll emphasize that on the developing nations, like what you see in Africa, um, other parts of Asia, that um, the developing nations have the right to become uh, energy independent. And so, and they're sovereign, so they have the right to decide what to do with their resources. So, in you know, there's my view on energy, you know, as, as in oil and gas, but then is also what's the right of a sovereign? Um, who might have a resource. And to me, that's really, really important that that's handled from their perspective properly. Yeah, certainly agreed there. And I would just do a plug for nuclear power. I'm a big fan, no secret. You know, you're right, because there's more than just the, the energy component to it. If you're a developing nation and you're looking to maybe develop your natural resources, as a foundation to really economic success, in my view, you have to run this like a business. And the fact of the matter is, is, you know, sovereigns, some of them are better at running, treating their government like a business versus, you know, others. But you're absolutely right. Natural resource development in a lot of these nations, unless you're like a small, you know, island nation somewhere, this is very critical to, you know, building out your economic profile from an infrastructure standpoint, transition energy, and then obviously to a more sophisticated form of energy that might be more costly to get in place um, initially, but is affordable later. So I fully agree with your thought process there to leave, you know, the freedom of choice with regards to, you know, sovereign decisions and so forth. Well, let's look at Recon here. Why don't mm -hmm. you give me that one to two minute summary of just the company and current status? Okay, thanks. Chronos in Africa is, is laser focused on the exploration and development of an area called the Kavango Basin. It's in northeast Namibia and northwest Botswana. We have kind of unique, we have leasehold that covers the entire basin, you know, 8.5 million acres. It's one of the largest undeveloped hydrocarbon basins in the world onshore. We like the area for a lot of reasons, both under the ground uh, and above the ground. Um, under the ground, you know, we can talk about some of the geology and the technical aspects that we like. But above the ground, you're uh, talking about two of the uh, stablest and longest-lived democracies in Africa. You know, as, as somebody who's worked in Africa quite a bit, you know, all the way up, in, including uh, 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 Saharan Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa, working in Namibia and Botswana is, is just very, very, very straightforward. You know, they are good infrastructures, rule of law, and uh, reasonable license contracts. Uh, Recon Africa has a very senior technical team. You know, it's almost, I feel like I'm coaching an all-star team sometimes from the uh, the geologist uh, through the geophysicist and, and geochemists, and then our uh, uh, environmental team. Um, we have people who've worked around the world who know their domains and are all uh, extremely positive about uh, this basin going forward. I mean, the technical guys like myself, 
there's lots of there's remuneration and there's there's pride in your 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 life's activity and uh to me this whole team is really focused on what's probably one of the most important and interesting opportunities uh in the subsurface uh, for oil and gas in the world right now we have a, a good uh, cash position, about 70 million roughly, but we're in the middle of drilling our second well and about to, with uh, acquisition of our uh, environmental impact assessment permits, uh, begin our first 2D seismic program. So that's the company in a, in a nutshell. Yeah, Scott, I appreciate that and certainly agreed on the potential here. And the market is certainly starting to respect that potential. Um, one thing that came to mind, you know, the Cavango Basin, you know, generally not really known at all. And I think a group that's probably notable on the listed company front that has been, you know, active in Africa would be, you know, the Lundin Group, Africa Oil, International uh, Petroleum, a couple others. But what's the thought process there? I mean, you've been around the world. You've seen a lot of these comparable type projects. Uh, you guys have this entire basin. What's your thoughts on comparability or maybe we can't compare? You know, it's just it's just phases of the uh, you know oil and gas resource uh, life cycle. You know, the Cavango. I, I did my own due diligence when I was when I took early retirement from from Halliburton, and there was lots of things that I could do. Um, the Cavango is interesting for, and is probably where it is in terms of development be, today because of really really two things. One is that it's uh, the surface is really all uh, Kalahari Desert. So it's a little difficult to get those telltales from surface geology and mapping. You know, we do, we've done all the regional mapping uh, to the, you know, around the points of the compass in the area. So we, we know what that can tell us, but you know, it's everything else is, is uh, obviously in a desert. And then politically, you know, uh, Namibia in particular has only been a sovereign nation since, since the nineties. It started out as a German colony. It was then a South African colony. Uh, it, you know, uh, had several challenges over those years of colonization, but emerged in the 90s and basically didn't have a petroleum regime. So th their first attempt at it was a, a little bit challenging. And really the second attempt, which is what we're under right now, was, was, was quite reasonable and they did their homework. But that was early, early 2000s. So to compare to, say, the East Africa Rift and some of the players there, which, I'm, which are well in the development phase, you know, you have to kind of roll the clock back 20 odd years or so uh, in terms of where we are. Um, we've the nearest well control was, you know, I believe what 100 170 kilometers away, um, and we were really just going on uh, Aeromag data to see the basin to begin with, and that data wasn't available to the 2000s. So it's kind of apples and oranges in, in in a sense between those other areas in terms of just you know you could actually work in Namibia where it was an available economic opportunity and then frankly just you know the paucity of data but again when we looked around we looked at the regional geology we felt based on if you look at Jim Granass published work that there was a rift system coming through here all of the onshore plays certainly in recent years unless you go to some of the coastal plays are based on rift basins, um, East Africa Rift, Central Africa Rift, and so we know that that you know, is a good area to uh, develop that or good tectonic area to develop hydrocarbons. And then we knew that there was a Karoo Shale uh, that had a trend that, that we thought intersected with this rift play. But uh, again, back to your original question, we're early days 
in the development of, or really not even the development, in the expiration of this play. Um, so there is risk. We feel that a lot of the elements are coming together, and we're seeing that in the first couple wells, but very nascent. Your comments about Namibia, Botswana being, in my view, probably the top two jurisdictions in Africa at this point, given South Africa a bit on decline, at least in my book, as far as, you know, stability goes. You know, also thank the Germans and the Australians. Uh, they've put together uh, over the decades, whether it be exploration and natural resource companies, et cetera, have put together a good framework for natural resource development in the country, plus a solid footing as far as, you know, the political history of the country, you know, Namibia specifically. Um, you talked cash on hand. Can you share with us the the shares out approximately today and then also any major shareholders that you'd like to mention that are on the roster? So from the shares outstanding, the, 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 what I have most recent, and just for your listeners, we're, we're, we're mainly TSXV, but we also are on OTCQX um, as RECAF and OXD in Frankfurt. So we have um, 161 million shares outstanding, fully diluted 185, and then pro forma uh, is about 206. Any of your listeners that would like to dig deeper, basically this is the data that's on our most recent investor presentation up on our website. And so that data can be brought down and looked at. And then Grayson Anderson, who's our investor relations lead, can also be contacted uh, to check on questions. Share price is, is uh, Canadian, $8.50. All numbers I'm telling you are Canadian, by the way. Um, so we have a market cap of, uh, of $1.5 billion right now. Uh, we do not carry any debt uh, whatsoever. We have roughly 12% uh, insider ownership. Probably don't want to get into specific names. Um, if someone's really curious, I'd, I'd, I'd point them to, to Grayson. I will say that if you look at our technical roster, Everybody is an investor. I'm an investor. You know, uh, if you look at the geologists that are on the team, they're investors. Uh, I'll say with one exception, which is an academic, and academics, you know, <laughs> sometimes have a little challenge getting the cash up to invest. But everybody who's working on this project technically is also an investor. Scott, that's great. And you're referring to some numbers that are a little bit dated because you know, obviously uh, the audience that are, when they do listen, will probably see a higher share price in the market. They, they, they will. And if the Certainly. share price has been, is you know, we've had yeah. several, I think, positives that are moving the share price. I just wanted to kind of keep consistent with what we've have published out there. And so right. that's what people can find when they go to our website. But yes, there's a lot of folks following us and there's more recent data for those who can get it. Well, just, uh, you know, maybe just give the audience a, a flavor for, you know, your guys' cash level. You stated that uh, realistically, if you guys had to make this cash last out here and assuming no surprises, um, does this cash level see you guys through to the third well campaign completion and the 2D seismic completion? No, I'm, you know, as anybody who's been around a business, you drill your first well and you learn some things from the drilling side, you know, efficiencies, what works, what doesn't kind of fits. I would add to that, especially during the first well, we, we did our best to put, you know, everything we thought we would need it, uh, on the boat, bring it up to the well site in terms of spares, uh, extra parts. You know, it's like on a big camping trip <laughs> with a lot of expenditure. Uh, we found that some things uh, were a little faster than we thought. And if you if everyone remembers to last year and earlier this year, supply chain has been a real challenge. Uh, and it's it's gotten quite a bit better for those of your investors who are working other major capital projects, but it's still a challenge. So why I bring that up is that our first wall cost was 
you know, higher than we expected. Um, but now in our second well, we have everything on site and we're not waiting on parts when something breaks. We have, we know what we have to have in terms of the inventory for the rig, because this is the first time we've used this rig. It was a brand new rig. So to get to your, the heart of your question, we actually see ourselves funded for about six wells and the seismic at this point. We're not going to drill them all continuous. We, we're going to, as I say, we learn something from every well and the seismic is going to be critical, but we're uh, happily quite well funded for a, a number of wells and our GNA. Well, Scott, why don't we skip down here and come back to some other questions that I've come up with here, but sure. maybe just give us the critical path outlook for the company here, because we're talking a little bit on operations here. What uh -huh. key items do you expect to accomplish over, say, the next 18 months or so? Right now, we have our initial three-well drilling program. We're into the second well. Uh, it's going really well. Uh, that will we'll probably finish that well, uh, you know, we're, we're saying towards the uh, end of this month, uh, maybe early July. We're also in the process of uh, gathering permits. We've awarded a, a contract to Polaris uh, Geophysical up in Calgary, great company. Uh, they worked in Africa quite a bit. So we'll go into a period then of, of uh, acquiring seismic. Uh, 450 kilometers to start of uh, of 2D, but uh, inevitably when we see we'll we'll shoot the seismic, we'll see things interesting and go back and and uh, you know add to that uh, to get some more detail. So I see an initial campaign of drilling, uh, which we're kind of part part way through. Um, I see then the seismic acquisition uh, processing. We're putting up processing contracts as we speak. And then the interpretation of that, and then a, a next round of drilling that uh, will come up following uh, the seismic data. And maybe to, to kind of step back to the to the process of what we're going through, this is, you know, people haven't seen this in a, you know, entire process in a while because there really haven't been that many brand new basins in a while. I mean, the first brand new basin I worked was back up in the North Slope of Alaska back in the day. But, you know, the way we're approaching this is, you know, the first thing we want to do is to see if there's uh, a, a working hydrocarbon system. So can this basin, which we've identified with barometric data, which is, you know, gives us a good picture of basement, but not what's in it. Is there uh, the kind of rocks in thermal history that can potentially generate oil and gas, right? And then are there reservoir rocks that'll uh, store it, you know? And so, that's sort of this initial phase. And so the wells we're drilling now would be termed stratigraphic test wells. What's that mean? Well, that means we're really just focused on the rocks. We're drilling the wells, examining all the cuttings, uh, you know, having the geochemistry looked at, every aspect of them, taking sidewall cores, you know, little, if you will, uh, you know, like shotgun shells size samples that you take from the side of the well, shipping those to the US for analysis, looking for oil samples in there. And then uh, obviously running uh, running logs, but not flowing anything yet. So we get those stratigraphic test wells. We know what's in the ground. We shoot our seismic. Seismic ties these, you know, very detailed points of data into the broader uh, picture that the seismic imaging presents. And then we get our full view of the basin. So, you know, if stratigraphic test wells are step one, step two, you get the uh, the seismic and step three, then you say, okay, let's map this and see where are the closures, where's the accumulations. And then we start drilling what I would term proper exploration wells. So to answer your question, we'll be drilling proper exploration wells into this year, early next year. Uh, 
Um, and so those are the steps I see us going through. And once you have those expiration wells, then you can say, okay, here's where I see an accumulation, here's where there could be reserves, and then you look into the actual commercialization. So very measured program, quite stepwise. And the petroleum agreement that we have with the uh, with the Namibian um, uh, Ministry of Mines and Energy, you know, mimics this perfectly. It's, it's, it's actually quite a modern, well-set-up petroleum agreement by, by Namibia. And Scott, let's continue to talk some operations here and updates. Uh -huh. You know, National Petroleum Corp of Namibia, or NAMCOR, they've uh, started a partnership with you guys. Talk about the importance of having the Namibian government in full support for responsible onshore oil project development and, of course, this new uh, partnership. Yeah, yeah, we're really excited about working with NAMCOR. So the, sort of the background is, it, is, is that if you look at uh, the petroleum the uh, petroleum agreement we signed with Namibia back in 2015, and it's similar to most that you'd find, you know, uh, around the world. We uh, the, that agreement calls for the setting aside of 10% of the acreage for the national oil company, um, so that's uh, Namcor, and that they are carried, if you will, which means we pay uh, their their uh, costs until commercialization. So, you know, basically, we've always kind of been a in this relationship. We've now got it down to where we have a joint operating agreement that says this is how we all behave, this is how we do budgets and drill wells and everything else. Quite standard stuff, but we're really happy to go forward in So they're now our partner going forward. It's us and NAMCOR working shoulder to shoulder. And, you know, they are extremely excited about this, as is, you know, really I can say across the ministries about the potential for what we see in, in Kavango. But, you know, NAMCOR is now officially our partner. We have our working relationship established and I couldn't be happier. Let's move on here just a little bit more on operations, and then let's come back to ESG. You're ex-Halliburton. You've laid forth this schedule for us here that'll definitely span into next year, no problem. If things go as intended, and mm -hmm. things are showing up as things are showing up now and going forward here, and as the geotechnical team confirms, what is your expectation on a potential cost profile for a meaningful operation and, and suitable wells? So again, this is conventional development, so we're looking at, at vertical wells. You know, we're learning about, you know, how, to, how best to design these. I think a, a reasonable number would be, you know, uh, to be conservative, would be 10 million a well. Um, I think those numbers come down as you fine tune where you are. But, you know, we're not doing expensive things like fracking. We're not drilling long horizontals. We're looking to this as a conventional hydrocarbon system. And that's what the, uh, the rocks are telling us so far. We're seeing all the uh, components that, that make that up. And so throwing out a conservative number, but I think, you know, when we do our economics um, and you know, we can be quite, quite positive about the, uh, the viability of a project like this from an economic perspective. Go a little bit further here, Scott, and talk, mm -hmm. you know, the jurisdiction in terms of infrastructure here, you know, we know it really well, Namibia, just for the purposes of various uranium and gold vehicles that we cover, you know, in country and, and have uh, in our portfolios. Sure. But talk about the infrastructure that's already in place in Namibia and then your guys' process, should something become commercial, what's the process? You know, one of the learnings that you that we have is over the years is, you know, if you have an oil discovery, and we certainly see oil in these uh, first two wells, there's always gas there as well. Um, and so you have to think of the two simultaneously. And that's what we're doing. So from, and 
obviously, you know, uh, as per our net zero commitment, we can't, we're not going to flare. Um, so the the way we're looking at monetization at this point is kind of twofold for for oil. Um, you know, the road infrastructure and the electricity infrastructure is already quite good. It's really amazing how good the roads are. It was quite straightforward to get the rig from Walvis Bay, from the boat, up into our first well site, you know, in uh, in Cavango East. And you know, there's the the roads are already there. You know, I've been in some place where you'll have a discovery in a certain country and you know, you have to helicopter everything in there, right? And so we're very, you know, you know, fortunate in that regard for that piece of the infrastructure. We still have to build roads. We still have to do a lot of work, but the basics are, are, are there and the, the economic infrastructure is there. From a product standpoint, you know, the thinking is that kind of like in, in North America, we would initially truck oil to a railhead in a place called Group Fontaine, work with the uh and we're already starting to work with the railroad to do discussions about okay can we get oil cars here and then uh take it uh, from rail to the coast again at walvis bay uh where we would need to build a, a crude um infrastructure but uh there've and there's already been you know inquiries made into that by others the 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 bay itself is is quite suited for deep water tankers and then this part of the world, you know, the oil traders, uh, the traffickers, uh, vitals are pretty active. So if you look at sort of scenario one for oil, um, uh, if you will, marketing, that's that's what we're looking at. And we're, we're you know, in light of the fact that we've been successful in, in determining that there is, in fact, a uh, an active a conventional hydrocarbon system, we're, we're taking those discussions to the next level. Um, on top of that, there's also talk of rail going all the way uh, past us to the east for uh, copper mines. That's great. We're, we're looking into that as well. For gas, there uh, is some technologies that really weren't quite commercial a couple of years ago, but, but are now. Uh, and it relates to uh, something called gas to power. So in that regard, the idea is that instead of building gas pipelines hither and yon, at least from the initial monetization, we would look at building a gas to power, gas to power plants closer to the uh, to the wells themselves, um, and then converting that to electricity, and then we move electricity. Um, that's uh, if you go to uh, Angola, there's a gas to power plant near the, uh, the LNG facilities. Uh, I know Botswana has looked into this for some of their coal bed methane plants, and it's common in India as well. So we're looking uh, into that as, as sort of the, the first steps uh, in terms of providing a place to take our gas and to monetize it. And to be clear, this would be a wonderful boom for the uh, for the area and for Namibia. You know, Namibia right now is a complete importer of energy, 100% import, um, and that's it's all from from South Africa. So there's a there's a lot of reasons you might think about why energy independence is really really attractive, and it can start out both as gas to power and ultimately if there's a, uh, a market to build a refinery, yeah, they'd have oil independence. But yeah. the, the, that's, that's the, the, uh, the current scenarios we're looking at. Okay. This is interesting because obviously South Africa, um, a good chunk comes from nuclear power. And you're right, Namibia needs to have more independence on energy. 
and country. So this sounds like a really good way to go. And it's certainly the cleaner of the fossil fuels as far as going with some kind of a gas arrangement. So I think that makes sense. Any discussion in the future? I know this is longer term, but is there any consideration for refinement of products in country, Scott? Or do you really see this going to Wallace Bay and jumping on a tanker? We've been approached by several parties. There's one party that's been looking at this for a while to build a refinery in the Wallace Bay area, which obviously would be great for us. And we encourage that. You know, we're a, an, an upstream company right now, but there's at least three uh, uh, groups that have sent you know, materials to us about the idea. I think ultimately, you know, as Namibia becomes more and more economically strong and independent, uh, refining capacity uh, still makes still makes sense. And so we look forward to, to seeing some of those projects succeed. Well, let's bump into good old ESG for a moment. The company is aware and you are aware of, you know, misaligned groups such as National Geographic is negative on the work you're doing for Namibia and for the local community and environment. Of course, you know, National Geographic sometimes likes to run around the world and think that they're the ones who make the decisions. But, <laughs> you know, you know, the community and government, though, their support, Scott, is mission critical here. So maybe just talk to your guys' commitment to net zero, specific work such as water development. I know you guys are doing some work on that front and other initiatives that you've already mentioned, like energy. You know, what are you guys doing to really prove up Recon's alignment with all the critical parties involved? Well, you, you hit the nail on the head, whereas if we have to have the support of both the, the folks who live around our project in, in uh, East and West Cavango, as well as, you know, the government in Namibia and the country itself. and so. We actually um, have a Namibian affiliate that is run by Namibians. That's what we have, you know, a management team that's all local. Right now, we're employing about 250 odd folks uh, with, uh, in various projects, and this will grow over time. You know, exploration is not as intensive as say, did you get the development? But providing jobs, providing you know, uh, the ability for people to have work and maybe see the a way to get their kids to go to college and stuff. To me, that's just really, really critical. And I've always been committed to as soon as you can go local, you go and you go as fast as you can and bring in expats for both critical topics and for training. So we're well down the road to that. We have a great team in Namibia right now. Now, in terms of that probably falls in the area of, of say, social um, of the ESG. From the environment side, there's a couple of things that we've, we are, we're doing. First, when, when Craig Stanky and I went up to Cavango for the first time, it really struck us that we would see women walking along the roads with these large, uh, for lack of a better word, you know, barrels or buckets on their heads, just carrying water. And then we start asking around, oh, how far are you carrying the water? Well, sometimes it's 10 kilometers that they're carrying this water um, because it's still basically a rural area outside of the main city of Rundu. Um, there are folks, you know, uh, in sort of subsistence living, there's poverty, but everybody has the right to, to clean water. And what we discovered as we drilled our own first uh, water well, they have a, a fantastic aquifer for about 200 meters deep, really good, clean water. So we've started a program of drilling uh, community water wells, just so that people don't have to walk so far to bring water you know, to, to cook and clean and, and, and all that. And so we've drilled uh, four so far. Um, the, the wells, the water wells that each of our, you know, exploration wells or stratigraph test wells are using, those wells are gonna be donated to the community. And so, you know, we feel that that's just a critical need for, for 
any area, never a right is to have clean water. So we we're working on that um, as one of our critical programs. We're trying to permit up to uh, another 16 wells to be spread over the area, not necessarily where we're drilling our wells, but just where the need is. Um, second area that uh, struck us and we're beginning to move more strongly into now is if you fly into the region, um, uh, you know, Windhoek is in the south and you fly to the Kavango up in the north, you're struck by this sort of checkerboard pattern uh, in the in the flight and you look down of basically areas that have been sort of I won't say scorched but you know deforested farmed what have you and you know we it's basically a combination of frankly illegal deforestation you know there are valuable trees that unfortunately get in the hands of wrong people and are shipped to other countries for you know uh, commercial purposes and there's just subsistence farming that'll take an area, farm it up, and then and then it'll be gone. So the of course driver is is poverty, right? Nobody wants to uh, have your area stripped of some of its best wood and sh have it shipped out. But if you need the money, that's kind of what you do. And subsistence farming, they have to live. So very clearly, there's a need to reforest, and we're w working with the uh, the Ministry of Environment, which manages forestry, to look at starting programs right away to identify the right types of trees. Um, we're going to use one of our well sites as a nursery, actually. See the best way to grow them and, and start reforcing some of these uh, sort of blighted uh, squares of the, of the area. Um, so, and, and that, that can, you know, adds to, to net zero, uh, obviously, efforts. But it's really more important about being a good citizen and, and helping things that have, that have been done wrong and seeing if we can make it a little better. Scott, I think these are sensible solutions. And a few things that I thought of when you were talking here is, you know, obviously the, the governance part of it will, will also be part of this. And then, of course, the Namibian government, if something's economically viable, that, that there'll be a lot of good solutions as far as, you know, economic support for the local community first. And then, of course, to the national government and then beyond. But then yeah. also the local community getting that type of support from you guys, because you know, I've seen on conservation, I've seen B2 Gold, Clive Johnson and the club over there at B2 mm -hmm. Gold have done the black rhino conservation work by minting, you know, uh, gold coins and so forth and proceeds going towards that conservation work specifically in Namibia. And some of these ideas and these solutions that are coming up, you know, how do we help with poverty? How do we listen to what the community wants us to do and things like water development? I don't see folks like National Geographic coming out here and, and actually offering up viable, sensible opportunities and solutions. I don't see them writing any checks. And what's their solution for poverty? I've not seen it. I appreciate you showing some of those initiatives. And as you guys grow, obviously those initiatives are going to become larger and probably proportion to your guys's, you know, growth. You know, I appreciate you sharing some of those thoughts and of course, you know, hearing some of mine. Yeah, no, you've got some great ideas, and you're exactly right. And B2 Gold's done some some wonderful projects, and there's things that that we want to build on. I think a, a quote that uh, uh, that always comes back to me is we were one of our uh, our communication director was up in the San area, the San or uh, native people there where they live spans into Angola and Zambia and other areas. And uh, his quote was, you know, responding to a. Uh, a question, you know, from a, a reporter is, well, you guys just want us to look the same way we always have so you can take pictures on vacation. <laughs> I, I just thought that was very, very telling. 
And, you know, some groups, there's a vested interest in taking pictures for on vacations for people. And, you know, it's a business, that's fine. But we're trying to get a little more uh, broad than that. Um, we sure. really want to have people have jobs. We want to have them be able to have line of sight to their kids if they want to go into college and do other things to be able to, to do that. Um, and yeah, you're exactly right. You know, not everybody who's worried about the areas cares about that. Yeah. They worry about yeah. their own initiatives. Sure. I mean, what about the people there? What about sustaining their future? And you do that through economic initiatives. There's no other way, unless you're yeah. just going to write and hand out checks, which was yeah, not that, a good that never works. Either. And you know, there's a lot of work to getting to know the people. So, sure. and I would encourage any of your listeners. Namibia is a wonderful place to visit. If you go to Windhoek, you'll think you're in Southern California. There's a lot of beautiful uh, places to go and you know, great people. Um, but it really does come down to knowing the Kavango area. And so there is the government, you know, you know, the governors, if you will. There is what they call the traditional authorities, which represent, you know, kind of the sort of the, the groups, uh, the organization and governments that predate, predate the Western ones. Um, and then there's sort of the, the local councils. And so to really get to know the area, you just can't parachute in and parachute out. Um, you, you have to kind of understand the various uh, stakeholders and that takes time. And that's what I'm making sure we invest in. Certainly agreed on that thought process. Um, uh, we would like to continue to see other groups in the country that are developing natural resources continue to enhance their efforts. You know, the Chinese have uh, substantial stakes in uranium mines. Rossing, HUSAP, mm -hmm. not too far from Walvis Bay. What are they doing to help enhance the community and the nation? Even existing operators like Paladin. Is the current Paladin bringing forth and continuing the initiatives of the prior management team during the last uranium cycle? You know, these types of questions that these operators should be doing. And even little initiatives that folks like Hyadon at Ocino Resources is doing, and that's just an exploration company with a advancing gold deposit. It's good to see some good actors, and I think we'll see more of that as we continue here. So appreciate your guys' support. Of the well, community. yeah, I've seen it. Yeah. You know, I've worked in a lot of constituencies in Africa, and I've seen it done wrong, right? <laughs> and so even though we're just in the exploration phase, I, I from a I suppose from a perspective of other companies at this phase, we're over investing in ESG, but that's just, we just feel really strongly that's the way to, to do it. And that, you know, we are here at the invitation of the Namibian government. So it's, we want to make sure that we're providing benefit from the get-go. That's correct. And, and as far as I'm concerned, the sovereign nation, Namibian government and the local community are the authorities here, nobody else. Exactly. So let's move on here. I think we beat ESG to death, but let's go <laughs> to uh, uh, TSX upgrade potentially. You know, you guys have got a bigger market cap here. We've seen not just, you know, in oil and gas, but we've seen a lot of natural resource companies that are TSX listed either on the venture or TSX. As that market cap starts to grow to that, you know, half a billion to billion area, they start to look to upgrade their listings. Um, anything you can share on that front as far as consideration to getting up on the TSX big board or NYSE Amex exchange? Well, it's, you know, to me, it's all underpinned on us delivering to investors what we say we're going to deliver. You know, I'm really proud of what we've been able to do, both operational logistically, you know, during COVID, get our rig, buy a rig, get it refurbed, get it on a boat, get it across, you know, work with all of our, you know, third party partners, Halliburton and Schlumberger and, and, and all the other guys to to 
make these first wells go. And then to get the results such that we do see hydrocarbons, you know, uh, really exceeding our, our expectations pre-drill and not just the first well, but the second well. So to, to me, you know, for Recon Africa, it's all about us being able to, to deliver to investors what we say we're going to do. Now, so that gets interesting. That gives us the the opportunity to to potentially upgrade. And I can't get specific, but yeah, your question is 100% logical. And we're we're looking, I'd say, quite deeply at moving up on the exchange side. Uh, I don't want to foreshadow yet, but watch this space is what I would say. <laughs> well, Scott, I appreciate that. Wrapping up here, potential investors who are on the sidelines listening uh, in the audience here. You know, the market cap of the company as we chat, stands about 1.9 billion Canadian dollars. What would you say to them at this stage and at current price levels? Why should they consider Recon Africa now after this good run on the shares? Well, like I say, I think what their share price reflects, um, putting aside all the, the new trends we see in shorts and everything else, you know, is, is purely reflective of our ability to deliver. And we're gonna can continue to do that. Um, uh, whether it's you know through these current wells, through our seismic, and as we get into the exploration phase, so I think the market cap reflects you know the the capabilities of the company. And we're going to just keep proving that as we uh, move in for, towards our refinement of our ideas and move towards commercialization. Well, if we get anywhere close to uh, you know what some things have been indicated from Dan Jarvi and others. Uh, it's certainly possible we can see this go a lot higher here, and uh, some analysts out there also have some higher expectations. Best way for investors to reach out to the company? So if you go through our, our website, there are investor inquiries. It's investors at reconafrica.com. Uh, just send an email to that. Our IR manager, Grayson Anderson, is quite quick to do that. Just he lives in the UK, so that's his time zone. So in case you <laughs> wait a little longer, but he'll be he'll be back to you quite quickly. And then for general inquiries, uh, admin or uh, I guess you know we can provide more specific. If your investors want to get more specific, I guess Andrew, I can give you Grayson's contact, and we can work through through you to that. Well, Scott, uh, it's been a pleasure. Appreciate you taking the time with us here, and we're looking forward to following the continuing work at Recon. Keep up the efforts, and let's stay in touch. Yeah, thanks for the time, Andrew. It's uh, really a pleasure to reach out to your investors. And uh, it's one of the most exciting plays in the world. I feel quite fortunate to be here.